bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 12, 2016. This week, 48 years ago, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Civil Rights Act of 1968. That was April 11, 1968 to be exact. As part of the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act was created. The Fair Housing Act originally prohibited housing discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. In 1988, the law was expanded to prohibit discrimination based on disability and familial status. I'll talk a little bit more about fair housing later in the podcast. But first, we'll start off with the general news section, where I'll have an update for you on the presidential primaries. Then, in our long housing password section, I'll discuss recent HUD guidance on how the Fair Housing Act relates to housing restrictions based on criminal history. Then, I'll share a HUD report on tenants living in low-income housing tax credit homes. After that, I'll have a brief update on one state's extension of its state low-income housing tax credit program. Turning to new market tax credit news, I'll have a preview of what the New Markets Tax Credit Working Group is putting together regarding equal opportunity requirements for entities receiving CDFI fund assistance. In our historic tax rate section, I'll talk about which state is one step closer to extending its state historic tax credit through the year 2022. And we'll close out with renewable energy tax rate news, where I'll talk about a potential vehicle for the Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit Extension expansion to certain what have been referred to as orphaned cleaned energy technologies. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news... I have a quick update on the presidential primary races. By now, you've heard about the big upsets in Wisconsin last week. On the Republican side, Ted Cruz scored a decisive victory, earning nearly half of the state's GOP votes. Cruz's prize, 36 delegates out of the 42 available. Donald Trump got about 35% of the votes and picked up six delegates. John Kasich came in at 14% of the vote and earned no delegates. Wisconsin's results further narrowed the overall delegate gap between first-place Trump and second-place Cruz. By the way, Cruz last Saturday picked up the remaining 13 Republican delegates that were available from Colorado. That means Cruz swept all 34 of Colorado's pledged Republican delegates. More importantly, the Cruz victories increased the chances of a contested Republican convention in July. 1,237 delegates are needed to clinch the nomination, and Donald Trump still tops the leaderboard at 759 delegates so far. This according to the website thegreenpapers.com. Only 809 Republican delegates are still up for grabs, though, which means Trump needs to win almost 60% of the remaining delegates to secure the nomination on the first ballot. Cruz, by the way, has 544 delegates, and John Kasich has 144. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders won the Democratic race in Wisconsin. 
Sanders earned about 57% of the vote and 48 delegates. Hillary Clinton received about 43% of the vote and picked up 38 delegates. The Democrats also had the Wyoming caucuses on Saturday, and Sanders notched a win in Wyoming with nearly 56% of the vote to Clinton's 44%. However, Sanders and Clinton split the state's pledged delegates, seven each. Clinton remains the overall leader with 1,787 pledged delegates and superdelegates. Sanders stays in the running with 1,132 pledged delegates and superdelegates. The magic number for a Democratic candidate to pick up the nomination is 2,383 delegates, and there are still 1,845 delegates up for grabs. Looking ahead, the next race for the Republicans and Democrats is New York next Tuesday, April 19th. The delegate-rich state is ripe for the picking. At stake are 95 New York delegates for the Republicans and 247 pledged delegates for the Democrats. I'll keep you updated in future podcasts and on Twitter. In affordable housing news, HUD last week released Fair Housing Act guidance as it relates to criminal history, and the guidance was released for housing property managers and owners. Now, those with a criminal history are not in a protected class under the Fair Housing Act. So, why is it important to address how criminal history relates to fair housing? Addressing the issue is important because adverse housing actions based on criminal backgrounds can violate fair housing if they have a disparate impact on a protected class. HUD said that there are widespread racial and ethnic disparities in the U.S. criminal justice system. As such, housing restrictions based on criminal history are more likely to burden certain racial minority groups. For example, a housing provider has a policy against renting to people with certain convictions. The result could be turning away more people of a certain race or ethnicity. I should note that when it comes to housing discrimination, lack of intent is not a defense. Housing providers can still violate the Fair Housing Act if their policies or practices have an unjustified discriminatory effect, even when discrimination was not their intention. To clarify the matter, the HUD guidance provides a step-by-step framework evaluating whether a criminal history policy or practice has a discriminatory effect. You can find the guidance at www.hudresourcecenter.com, and you can read a post by my colleague Mark Shelburne about how this guidance has implications for apartment owners, and you can find it on my Notes from Novogratic blog. Speaking of affordable housing tenants, HUD recently updated its report about residents of units financed by the Long-Income Housing Tax Credit. This report contains data about residents of Long-Income Housing Tax Credit properties through the end of 2013. The report was a follow-up to HUD's initial report filed just over a year ago. That report included information through the end of 2012. This tenant data collection is mandated by a provision of the Housing and Government Recovery Act of 2008. The initial report that included data through 2012 found that 45% of low-income housing tax credit property tenants make 30% or less of area median gross income. And 40% of tenants are rent burdened meaning they spend more than 30% or more of their income on rent. By the way, those numbers were virtually unchanged in this recent update. Now, the report also includes information on household size, 
race and ethnicity, disability status, family composition, annual income, and the use of rental assistance. The updated version of the report includes information about an additional 150,000 units as compared to the previous year's report. This increase is due to properties being placed in service in 2013 as well as information that was not submitted earlier. These HUD reports are significant because they're valuable tools to help measure who the long-term housing tax credit benefits and how that changes over time. You can see the report at www.taxcredithousing.com. It's called Data on Tenants and LIHTC Units as of December 31, 2013. In state long-term housing tax credit news, I have a quick update out of Utah. Utah State Long-Term Housing Tax Credit Program has been extended for 10 years through the year 2025. Now, the program had sunset on December 31, 2015. At that point, Utah Housing Corporation was still able to roll over its leftover 2015 credits into 2016. Senate Bill 60 extends for an additional 10 years the formula for determining the aggregate annual tax credit that the Utah Housing Corporation may allocate. That calculation, by the way, is 12.5 cents multiplied by the population of Utah. The bill requires Utah to use IRS state population estimates for the formula. With a population of just less than 3 million people, the state long housing tax allocation in Utah will equal nearly $375,000 annually. Senate Bill 60 was signed by Governor Gary Herbert on March 25th. To read the bill, go to www.taxcredithousing.com. And if you have specific questions about applying for long housing tax credits in Utah, please contact Mike Morrison in our San Francisco office. In community development news, our New Markets Tax Credit Working Group is developing recommended practices in response to a Treasury memo about compliance with non-discrimination and equal opportunity requirements. That Treasury memo came out in January and included four requirements for recipients and subrecipients of CDFI fund assistance. These four requirements were A, providing a notice of rights that must be directly provided to program participants or beneficiaries, that programs must provide equal opportunity and be readily accessible to accommodate persons with disabilities, that program services must be offered in accessible spaces and facilities, and that programs must provide meaningful access to all program participants or beneficiaries regardless of their national origin and English proficiency. Neither the CDFI fund nor the Treasury Department has formally issued guidance on how to ensure compliance with the statutes, regulations, and executive orders. As a result, the New Markets Tax Credit Working Group is addressing some open questions and recommended practices related to the guidance. For instance, are qualified active long-term community businesses considered subrecipients? And exactly which statutes, regulations, and executive orders are applicable? Now, when the working group finalizes its recommended practices, it'll post them on its website, www.nmtcworkinggroup.com. And in the meantime, there will be a more detailed discussion about this in the May issue of the Novogratic Journal of Tax Credits. In historic tax credit news, an Alabama state bill to extend the state's historic tax credit program for seven years, that's through the year 2022, did pass the House. This bill now goes to the Senate for consideration. 
Without an extension, the State Historic Tax Credit Program will sunset later this year. This credit would remain equal under the bill to 25% of the qualified rehabilitation expenditures for certified historic structures, and it would remain at 10% of the qualified rehabilitation expenditures for qualified pre-1936 non-historic structures. Essentially, it parallels the federal program. No tax credit claimed for any certified rehabilitation could exceed $5 million for all allowable property types. That's except a certified historic residential structure. That limit is lower at $50,000. Now, the program would also keep its $20 million annual cap. Now, one change that Bill makes is to reserve as much as 10% of Alabama's annual allocations for targeted counties. In the event applications are not received for projects in those areas, though, the funds can revert to other applicants. The tax credits would not be available to owners of qualified structures that submit an application and rehabilitation plan after May 15, 2023. Now, the bill would become effective immediately after it's signed by the governor. At that time, it would become retroactive, effective as of January 1, 2016. If you want to read the bill, it's House Bill 62, and you can go to www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have historic tax credit questions, I encourage you to contact my partner, Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In renewable energy tax credit news, it looks like the Senate may have found the right vehicle to extend the investment tax credit for several clean energy technologies. As you may remember, Congress reached a deal in December last year to renew the investment tax credit for five years for some clean energy technologies. Now, that extension begins in the year 2017. This compared to the five-year extension for production tax credits that was retroactive to 2015. But in passing the extenders bill, several renewable energy technologies were left out. Those technologies include fuel cells, small wind projects, geothermal pumps, and others. The investment tax credit that expires at the end of this year includes those technologies. Small wind and fuel cell projects would get a 30% credit and most of the others a 10% credit. But as I said, they were left out of the extension last year. And this was called a, quote, clerical error by House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid said he would work with Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to address the matter. Well, McConnell last week moved to proceed with legislation that would reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration. The bill, called the Federal Aviation Administration Reauthorization Act of 2016, was passed by a Senate committee in mid-March. Because the bill includes provisions to reauthorize aviation-related taxes, those provisions come under the jurisdiction of the Senate Finance Committee. And having a tax title makes it easier under the Senate rules to consider other tax-related provisions, including those that reinstate the expiring investment tax credit technologies. Senate Commerce Committee Chairman John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota, said that the bill would likely need to include these renewable energy provisions to get enough support from Democrats to pass. An aide to Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch told Bloomberg BNA last week that he will offer the tax changes in a manager's amendment to the bill. The details are still being worked out. My colleague, Peter Lawrence in Washington, 
said that the Senate negotiations are a very positive development for the orphan technologies. However, Peter also notes that while the Senate may be nearing a deal, the House has not yet agreed. Indeed, notwithstanding Pelosi's remarks, it appears the House leadership doesn't believe it was a clerical error that the orphan technologies were left out. So where does this leave us? Well, after the Congress passed a short-term extension before the Easter recess, the authorization for the Federal Aviation Administration expires in July. And Congress is scheduled to go on recess starting in mid-July for the national conventions, and that recess is expected to last until after Labor Day. So the reauthorization bill is must-pass legislation, and Congress is under pressure to pass long-term authorization. And that gives the Senate Democrats leverage to press the case for the orphan technologies. Investors in renewables say that they desire certainty about tax credits, and especially in technologies with long lead times. Without legislation to extend these technologies, the investment tax credit will expire for them at the end of this year. So there obviously is a sense of urgency to get them included. I'll keep you updated on any movement in this matter, and I'll do that through Twitter and on my notes from the Democratic blog, as well as future podcasts. That brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Also, don't forget, sign up for the 2016 HUD Rent and Income Limits and your Tax Credit Property Back to Basics webinar. The course will cover the effects of the 2016 HUD Income Limits on localizing tax credit properties. Novogratik is hosting the webinar tomorrow, Wednesday, April 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. You can sign up today at www.novaco.com. Well, that's it for now. This is Michael Novogratik. As always, thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.